For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Find out what happens when youth on both sides of the border listen to each other's stories. Separating fact from fiction about Cleopatra. The story of a Tucson couple whose lives were changed by unexpected visitors in their backyard. And how Film Tucson is working to bring the movie industry back to Arizona. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Ambos Nogales is Spanish for the two Nogales. Teenagers from both sides of the border there have launched a binational project that they believe will reach people not just in the United States and Mexico, but around the world. It's called Beyond the Wall. For the next four months, the teens will work together to publish videos, art, music, and profiles of one another aimed at creating a true first-person look at what it's like to live in a border community. Nancy Montoya was there for the project's launch. The chatter is unmistakable. Teenagers. There are around 40 high school students taking part in spirited conversations. 20 are from Nogales, Arizona, and 20 from Nogales, Sonora. And between them stands a 20-foot fence. They are sharing bits and pieces about themselves, like a favorite song from the movie Coco. The cultural consultant on the movie is from Nogales, something both sides were proud of. My name is Jason and I study here in Nogales High School. I I feel it's really important to stay connected with people your same culture, even though there is a physical line dividing us. Now Jason Canizales, a senior on the U.S. side, says he's always seen the fence as a needless intrusion in his life. As a teenager, I feel that walls are not useful, and I believe that the wall, it's doing more damage than it's doing more good. My name is Kevin Jung. Um, I'm from Nogales, Nogales, Sonora. (laughs) On the Mexican side of the fence, Kevin says he is anxious to show off his English to his new friend, Jason. Make friends and interesting to meet more people. (laughs) The teenagers have a lot in common. Both are good students who say they don't think about the fence on a daily basis until they stand next to it. Kevin gets so emotional, he abandons his English and shifts to Spanish. I feel a bit sad, he says, because we are the same community divided by this stupid fence. It feels, he says, like we are all prisoners, that we can't get out and they can't get in. These 40 teenagers have committed to getting to know each other over the next four months in a program called Beyond the Wall. What's going on in our country, in both of our countries, there's a crisis of listening. That's Jess Kaufman, the co-developer of the project. 
She's from New York and has a friend from Mexico City. Together, they decided they would either sit back and feel helpless, or they could use their training in the arts and humanities to invest in tomorrow, invest in young people on both sides of the border. So, can you guys line up and kind of space yourselves out a little so that we can have one-on-one -on -one conversations? So for this part of the Beyond the Wall event series, we are launching a four-month-long pen pal program with two different high schools, Nogales High School here in Nogales, Arizona, and the Preparatorio Municipal in Nogales, Sonora. And today we're going to have a big picnic at the border where all the kids are going to come together, share some pizza, talk a little bit about ambos Nogales, and start to frame the discussion that they're going to have peer-to-peer -peer over the next four months. Remember, there is still that fence dividing them, but Kaufman says technology is about to bring down the wall. We've set up a Google Classroom, so the students will be emailing each other, having conversations, sharing media, creating art and videos, and generating a whole body of material that really speaks to what it's actually like to be a young person at this intersection of two nations. Yo me llamo Tania Romina. La frontera es, es, es lo mejor porque somos... Tamina Romina lives on the Mexican side. She says the borderlands are the best because, she says, we're so close to another country and a different way of life. I want to know that. The place I live in, it's really, it's really good, it's really positive. And Jason wants the world to know that his home is a place he loves, but he says the fence is a problem. There's no real danger, as in, as in there's mistrust. It's just that it separates us, and I think it's really unfair not to have our communities together, even though we're one. Personally, I know and believe that young people are engaging those challenging topics like nationalism and border issues every single day. So this is a chance to welcome them into this adult conversation that they're already a part of. My name is Carlos Alvarez. I am a student here in Nogales High School. The majority of the population here are Hispanic, and we really want to bring people together. So it's my biggest goal to bring everyone together because that goes with my ideology. Over the next four months, the students will be writing about each other from a binational perspective. Their work will include profiles, videos, and artwork, and will be distributed around the world. Kaufman says her message to young people on both sides of the border is simple. Your voice matters, and what you have to say matters. Carlos Alvarez says being part of the Beyond the Wall project is really about people overcoming politics. All of us are people, including people from across the line and the ones here. We all want to be one together united. No wall can separate us as a community because we are known as the Ambos Nogales. In Ambos Nogales, I'm Nancy Montoya for Arizona Spotlight. More than 2,000 years after her contemporaries have faded away, Cleopatra's name is still well known, and her story has inspired fiction in every medium. But along with these many interpretations comes a lot of misinformation. Alison Futrell is an academician who specializes in ancient Rome with an interest in gender, power, and the pop culture of the day.
Futrell is a department head and associate professor in the University of Arizona Department of History. This fall, she's teaching a course called Cleopatra, No Submissive Woman, for the community classroom. It's a five-part lecture series that explores the difference between fact and fiction concerning the last queen of the Kingdom of Egypt. Women had been sharing the throne in Egypt for generations, actually, by the time Cleopatra came to power. In fact, she is the seventh of that name to hold the regnal spot in ancient Egypt. And I think that women, especially in the second century BC, provide the most continuity. There's one Cleopatra that is in power for something like 60 years. So most of the century, she is an authority figure that people can rely on. Granted, there's a lot of civil war going on at this time, lots of competition between sibling rulers, married rulers. Bear in mind, the Ptolemies are doing sibling marriage routinely in the dynasty. So that kind of rivalry probably intensifies things. But it's not something that's entirely unexpected in Egypt. And I think that helped her leverage her own power um, in a Roman situation. Even a cursory glance at Cleopatra's name on the internet will come up with several titles that were mm-hmm. attributed to her. So let me get your reflection on these in a sentence. Okay. Diplomat. Yes, definitely a diplomat. <laughs> uh, her efforts to negotiate with local rulers in the region blasted in the propaganda that's hostile to her. But if you read between the lines, it indicates she's willing to give a little and take a little. Naval commander. She was the one who insisted on having a substantial navy in the showdown against Octavian, the showdown against Rome. And she certainly had the resources for that. Uh, But that's a major strength of military authority at the time. And that's where she can really help in terms of the, the resources available to her. Polyglot. Yes, Cleopatra is known for being a a polyglot. We're told that she knows seven languages, including troglodyte. Not quite sure what troglodyte is, language spoken in caves by somebody. But interestingly, does not include Latin and does include Egyptian. Supposedly, she was the first member of her dynasty to actually learn the local language of Egypt. Another one that's here is medical author. The idea that Cleopatra is tremendously learned in certain aspects of medicine is, I think, a later claim that accrues to her legend. It's not impossible, given the resources available in and around the Library of Alexandria, for her to pick up a a wide array of different kinds of knowledge, including scientific and medical. And medical expertise is something, of course, that Egypt has been known for thousands of years uh, to be particularly expert in. Okay, so how long was Cleopatra in power? The earliest indication that Cleopatra has come to power dates to probably 52 BCE, and then she dies in 30 BCE, so 22 years, more or less. What kind of kingdom did she inherit, and what kind of kingdom did she leave before Rome came in and changed the game? Cleopatra comes to power at the tail end of the reign of her father, Ptolemy Alites, Ptolemy the, the flute player. He had had a troubled reign and had actually been exiled for a number of years by his daughter, his oldest daughter, older than Cleopatra, who took charge before her. She eventually died, various sort of tawdry things happening around that, and he gets Roman help to reinstall him as the, the king. 
there had been a lot of fighting prior to, to this time. And that's indicated, I think, by the fact that the Alexandrians exiled the king in power in favor of woman in her late teens, early 20s, something along those lines. Egypt is periodically beset uh, by demands on its resources. It's wealthy, uh, but Ptolemy Aletes had a lot of bribing to do and a lot of payback uh, owed to the Romans. And he seems to have, let's say, strenuously taxed the people of Egypt to enable him to do that. Uh, so he wasn't the best loved king. And it may have been that the Nile River Valley as a whole suffered because of this obligation he felt. So Cleopatra inherited that uh, for the first, you know, handful of years, she's struggling against her brother to maintain control. She's dealing as well with a time of Roman civil war, much of which is going on in the eastern Mediterranean. It seems, though, that over the next decade, she more or less stabilizes things in Egypt. And there's prosperity. And Egypt is once again one of the major breadbaskets of the Mediterranean. It seems like she might have been somewhat successful in returning the sovereignty of Egypt to the Egyptians. Cleopatra was definitely successful in returning that sovereignty to the Egyptians and even expanding upon that. Uh, the stabilization of the Nile River Valley is important, of course, but there's strong indication that she is taking action to push Egyptian power beyond the Nile River Valley to the peak of the Egyptian empire during the period of the New Kingdom, you know, something like a thousand years before, uh, she could apparently be fairly persuasive with Antony in getting certain kinds of lands, certain kinds of revenue that led in that direction. Today, Allison, we live in a time when the political discussion is often driven by scandal. Mm. What was the equivalent in Cleopatra's time? What was the biggest scandal she dealt with during her 22-year reign? That's kind of a difficult question to answer because the story that we have about Cleopatra is largely scandal because it's written by the other side. It's written by the people who were in opposition to her and who ended up winning. Uh, so the whole notion of her as this uh, great seductress, possibly using, according to some authors, drugs and witchcraft as well, uh, to ensure her control over these important men who then become, to a certain extent, puppets for her uh, to achieve what our hostile sources say are, are kind of petty ambitions. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, expanding territory, but it's because she wants the stuff, you know, she wants the, the jewelry and the gold and the, the, the precious ointments and, and so forth that, that go along with that. Uh, so by, by that analysis, she is the scandal. Alison Futrell will teach Cleopatra, No Submissive Woman, Tuesdays from 5 to 6.30 p.m. from September 11th to October 9th. It's one of seven courses offered in the University of Arizona's Lifelong Learning Community Classroom Fall Series. There's a link for information and registration on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Starting a new chapter of life in a different house and a new neighborhood can be a challenge, but times of transition also bring opportunities to make amazing discoveries. Next, Tony Paniagua has the story of a Tucson teacher 
whose life was transformed once she began to get to know her new neighbors. While they were living in a house that was built in the 1950s, Mary Lewis and her husband discovered the home would need extensive improvements for the long term, so they decided to find a newer place with more space as an added bonus. Actually, it was Mary's idea to explore other options. I went to the two favorite streets that I like, and I found this house, and we figured out how we could get it. They moved from Midtown Tucson to the Tucson foothills in 1997. It wasn't until a few years later that Mary started noticing her neighbors and their peculiar habits. Interesting, she thought. He sleeps a lot, and, and when he wakes up, he attacks his mother. And she is very, very good with that because it's a way for him to learn how to fight. Not only that, but the family's dining habits are also fascinating. The food is fresh and local, always has been, but there's no such thing as table manners. Most recently, they brought rabbits in the yard, and they, they never eat the cottontail. <laughs> and sometimes it's not too nice. Mary's neighbors on her two-acre property have been different bobcat families. They live among Palo Verde and mesquite trees and other native vegetation. It's been a joy. I love the wildlife and the birds and the javelina. There were 14 javelina here yesterday. The adaptable bobcat is the most common wildcat in North America. It lives from southern Canada to central Mexico in various habitats that range from humid swamps in Florida to dry deserts in Arizona. In the suburban Tucson area, they are not uncommon, although Mary and her husband Lou weren't sure what to make of them during their initial encounters. Lou even wanted Mary to get into her car when she needed to check the mail at the end of the driveway. My husband was concerned about the bobcats being in the yard, so he wanted me to drive to get the mail, and I thought that was over the top. Along the way, the felines went from occasional sightings to frequent backyard explorers, not quite guests when it all began. The adults can easily get over Mary's five to six foot concrete block wall. The mothers use their mouths to carry the kittens until the babies get older and can also scale the wall. So I called Fish and Game and they said it was okay that the bobcat had been watching this yard for a long time and she knew that she was safe here. She could feel that somehow. And so after that, Lou was comfortable and I was joyful. <laughs> when the coast is clear, Mary provides water for the cats, only water, not food. And when they do enter her yard, she stays inside the house while she watches them and enjoys their antics. I do have an interesting family. <laughs> And it's all the time, I, it's hard to get any work done. This summer, Mary is sharing her yard with a loving mother and one feisty kitten. However, a few years ago, a busy female bobcat was trying to keep up with a larger litter. I felt sorry for the first mother with three babies. She was exhausted. She was so thin, she was so exhausted, three babies. But one works. <laughs> Over the years, the cats became an integral part of the couple's life. Mary wrote a book with illustrations by Lou. We were married almost 35 years, and he had been in Nagasaki, so he had skin problems, and he couldn't really be outdoors. 
Um, when he was 84, he decided to paint. So I took some photos and he painted from the photos. And I said, now you have to do 13 photos for a calendar of the Bobcats, and he did. After he died, I couldn't put the calendar away. So I laid the pages out on the counter and I wrote a children's story about the Bobcats. One page says, the Bobcats get ready for school. Pay attention, Bobcats. And there's three on the fence and one's looking the other way. After Baby Bobcat Goes to School, Mary teamed up with another author who wrote a second book. I give more books away than I sell, but my purpose was to share my husband with the world, and that was met. <laughs> the second book is for older children. It also uses Lou's illustrations. He died in 2014. It wasn't unexpected, 98. I thought I'd have five years, and I got 35, and so I'm very, very grateful about that, yeah. Mary is a retired school teacher who likes to find educational and learning opportunities in her observations. In addition to the books, she also shares them on Facebook and YouTube videos. It's very entertaining, and I, I like to think that this is like a schoolyard, and it seems to me that she is actually educating that baby. Looking back, Mary Lewis says she wasn't expecting her life to be affected so much when she moved to her larger house two decades ago and came across the Bobcats. I'm really humbled and really pleased that they choose my yard. We have to realize that we encroached on their world. Yeah, I pay the taxes on it, but it's for the world, it's for the animals, and we just have to show appreciation and, and you know love them from afar. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Mary Lewis's backyard also serves as home to some adopted Sonoran Desert tortoises. She says the young bobcats sometimes want to play with the reptiles, but eventually the cats lose interest because the tortoises just don't participate. While states like Georgia and Louisiana have recently prospered by offering tax incentives to attract film production, other places have seen that revenue diminish, including Arizona, where movie-making once flourished during the heyday of the Western. Next, film essayist Chris DeShiel considers the current status of Film Tucson and its efforts to bring Hollywood back to the old Pueblo. Chris DeShiel is an independent contributor to this show, and his commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. I'm the kind of moviegoer that sits through all the end credits of a film. If you're like me in that regard, you might have noticed that there's often a special thanks credit to the film office for the city, state, or country where the movie was shot. Such film offices became especially important when the old studio system went into decline after the Second World War. Filmmakers and audiences wanted more realism, and that meant shooting more movies on location rather than on sets in Hollywood. The film companies needed to coordinate with localities, and a film office would negotiate permission to film in certain places or neighborhoods and help out with logistics and other issues. Here in Tucson, we had the Tucson Film Commission for many years, a private sector group that coordinated with the city, 
mostly centered on the old Tucson studios and expanding gradually to include location shooting within the city itself. But as sometimes happens with private organizations, favoritism began to interfere with local businesses that didn't have members on the commission being kept out of the loop and complaints from Hollywood producers about the cronyism. So, in 1986, an official Tucson film office was created with a commissioner who reported directly to the city manager. In 1998, it was moved to the Office of Economic Development, and then in 2013, for budgetary reasons, it became a part of the Visitors Bureau and renamed Film Tucson. It's a public-private partnership funded by the City of Tucson, Pima County, the Town of Oro Valley, and more than 500 individuals and business partners. Film Tucson brings film productions here through a lot of marketing outreach, advertising, social media, trade shows, film festivals, etc., They offer tours to industry executives to let them see what we have to offer. Tucson has many diverse features. We're surrounded by four mountain ranges, each with different climate and vegetation. There's also the Sonoran Desert, along with beautiful old barrios and other city locations. Among other things, a director can create towns of the Old West, or futuristic locations on mine-scraped land, or get the look of Mexico or the Middle East without having to go to those places. Another advantage is that we're only an hour's flight from L.A. Film Tucson offers a lot of services, including help with scouting locations for filming, getting no-fee permits, providing production manuals, access to local suppliers and film crews, and coordinating everything with the city, county, state, federal agencies, and other institutions. Film offices have traditionally used tax incentives, rebates, grants, and subsidies to attract business. A big production that gets a 20 or 30% break in its taxes will save the filmmaker millions of dollars. Unfortunately, Arizona's state government in recent years has cut back drastically on its tax incentives. Personally, I think this is short-sighted. Movies bring money into the community, especially in productions that are here for a significant amount of time. Everything from hotels and rental cars to caterers, florists, and paint and hardware stores see an increase in business from feature film production. As it is now, Film Tucson can't compete for the big budget operations with cities and states that offer such tax incentives. However, there is still a steady stream of independent films, TV, especially reality and other non-scripted shows, and commercials that are shot here. Tucson has proven itself to be a film-friendly community that will go out of its way to help make movies happen, and Film Tucson is a big part of that. My thanks to Film Tucson director Shelley Hall for her help. You can find more information at their website, visittucson.org forward slash film. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Changes are coming to the NPR 89.1 schedule. Starting in two weeks, Arizona Spotlight will move to Thursdays at 8.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. and Saturdays at 3 p.m. Catch the debut of a new show called The Buzz at 8.30 a.m. on Friday, September 14th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.